Welcome to the Crash Chords Podcast. Segway. I, I feel very welcomed. Good. Yeah, I never owned a Segway. And I could never do one well. This is apparent. <laughs> Thanks for that. That was almost funny. We, you should have a star wipe right here. You should yeah. edit in a star wipe. <laughs> I don't know what the audio equivalent of a star wipe is. <laughs> if it was really <laughs> accurate, I should have said, and I can never ride one well, but then that, that would be separate, and then you wouldn't get the joke. So it had to be bad English for it to be the when joke. you have to explain a joke? You follow that? It's not funny. No, I'm, 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 I'm just breaking it down like we do other things. Does breaking it down not make it music? You, you, you're... Actually, you're ruining no. what we do, Matt. I believe we <laughs> no, I believe you're ruining what we do. I have confidence in what we do. We discuss this How one. dare he? Comedy is the really the major form of art, the only form of art that you can't explain and still retain its its essence. There are definitely comedy classes out there. It's, it can be explained about as much as we can explain. And indeed, we take two hours to do it. On that note... And fail, maybe. I'm Matt. <laughs> Sometimes. I'm John. And I'm Steve. Yeah, that's Steve. Yeah. Um, was John. There was something I was going to bring up Steve. at the top of the show, but I decided that I'm going to leave it towards the end. It's, of course, uh, one of our fans that we shouted out before, Star F, also known as Alex. Um, we're going to talk more about him later. We have some stuff to bring up. Uh, he reached out to us on the site, but more on that later. Let's go right into our album this week, which ah, Steve is bringing us. Quick uh, to form today. Yes. I like it. All right. Today, we are doing Perfuse 73. Or Prefuse. Prefuse. I don't know. However he likes to, likes to pronounce it. That is the project and alias of Scott Heron. Something exposed to me way back in college by an uh, old roommate. I really feel the need to commend him on this one, not just because I drew a large musical influence from him back in the day, but also because of a strange coincidence or connection that arises today. So that same guy is responsible for introducing me to Pinback, a band that became sort of an indie prog favorite of mine, and although we as a group might have looked at Pinback's 2012 album Information Retrieved to some less than favorable acclaim way back in episode 31, check it out, I've actually been in a pretty crazy pinback phase lately, cycling through all of their earlier albums and celebrating some of the most astute bass parts I've yet heard to this day. But I digress. One of pinback's core members, Rob Crow, was actually featured in today's project for just one song only. Granted, that's a really, really small advertisement. But to paraphrase your feelings, back on episode 144's review of Blur, Matt, I'm just really glad to get a new pinback song. Or in this case, a new Rob Crow song, which was probably collaborated with Prefuse 73. I digress again. I can't really find any hint of them ever working together before, so perhaps you could chalk this whole coincidence up to my roommate's similar artist excursion to circa 2008. Consider him reverse engineered. Anyway, that was sort of a pinback advertisement. Of course, today we're not looking at pinback, we're talking about Perfuse 73, and in truth, only one album under the name ever really caught my ear at the time, and that was One Word Extinguisher from 2003. But I was always pretty picky about what I decided to throw myself into, and that album and Heron's style intrigued me mostly for two special reasons. One, one, experimental use of rhythm, bracketed within almost hypnotic regularity, usually through electronic means. And two, a kind of kindred obsession with interval dynamics. 
dissonant drones alongside simple and confident melodies. This is the stuff that cuts deep for me, because it's, it's the very best of your ambient moodiness with the added bonus of a melody, which provides your character and your soul. So it comes across as very personal. Of course, this doesn't define his entire discography. His genre has been described by some as abstract hip-hop. I just discovered that term, and I adore the crap out of it. But the best way to describe that term and the remainder of his work, I've, in terms of what we've done, Flying Lotus. Yeah, we reviewed them back in uh, episode 19 and episode 131, and the two names are actually paired together a lot, uh, for reference it seems, and for sure you can actually hear the similarities. I would describe one word extinguisher as half Flying Lotus-y and half the two tiers that I mentioned above. And how do you want me to define Flying Lotus? Uh, just replace the word hypnosis with the word fearsome and you'll probably have a more pronounced shift than you'll think. So with that, we get his new album, Scott Heron's new album, Under Preview 73, Rivington Now Rio. Uh, it's brand new. It's actually not that long. It's only 10 tracks, and it's barely over the what's considered the standard length of an EP. It's uh, a little over a half an hour, and that's it's about it. It's actually 11 tracks. 11 tracks. Well, thank you. And it's 45 minutes. Uh, uh, no, it's 35 minutes. No, it's 43 minutes and 37 seconds. Okay, that's not that long, though. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> now that we're done correcting Steve. Which we don't get to do too often, so I'm okay with that. Um, we can, I guess, that's jump true. right into the album at hand. So the first track is called Senora 95. It's And in parentheses, they put intro, so we wouldn't be confused. You know, we want to know what kind of track it is. That's true. Um, so this one is an ambient track. Um, it's very kind of got this looming essence to it. It's it's not very long. It's only about a minute or so, I recall, and it, it it's exactly what it's described as. It's to introduce this album and this artist. It's a totally long song. It, he he's he's already setting up his idea of taking long, sweeping, uh, synthesized notes and spreading them out over a much larger framework than his beat work, which I really really enjoy. That's, that's the nature of the ambient side yeah. of it. Obviously, you you pursue drones. There, you're not really going to have like like harsh shifts. Instead, just slow alterations over the course. He's sculpting. He's shaping. Yeah, it. yeah. I call it scaping. He's creating a soundscape <laughs> with it. Um, and there's also the other aspect of it, which is the pulsing aspect in this song, the the waxing and the waning of the actual notes and the tones. Uh, both showing like some of the percussion work being a little bit clipped, but having these tones themselves rising in one ear or rising in both ears and then trailing off is a it, it does a great job of introducing his stylistic choices for this album. Mm -hmm. But in retrospect, in first listen, it was it was a little bit it was smooth, but it was still a little bit jagged because of how breathy it was, how, how chopped up some of the background tonal work was, some of the percussion work was. I didn't hear it as particularly chopped up. I mean, of course, because of ambient music or the way in which ambient music is described, because it's so long and smooth, I, I feel it's almost the antithesis of being chopped up. Uh, the only thing that it really lacks in terms of what other people might be looking for in it, but of course this would be non-ambient people, would be the lack of a melody. But even then, within that, there is kind of a melody. It creeps through here. Mostly just this little dance around E major. Uh, the drones in the background sort of bring out the root. They bring out the fifth for the most part. And then the melody brings out various intervals. Lots of sevenths, 
just prolonging them, and I thought it was very beautiful. Not a lot of meat, certainly, but it's an intro. It actually reminded me of the kind of intro we got back in uh, Godsticks and Visage Conundrum, back in episode 51. That was uh, the track Convergence. And also a lot of the airier tracks that we experienced in uh, Kang Ding Ray's Solon's Ark. That wasn't that long ago, I think, episode 133. A lot of references thrown around here <laughs> well, we're for have... the first minute. Yeah, yeah, there might be a few more as we go along oh, There'll well. be plenty more. But as a whole, I, I thought it sounded very beautiful, of course, ethereal. You know, these are just words we're going to bounce back to here. But there's also something so calm about it that it almost comes across as a little depressing. It's sort of like a, a despondency that kind of, like, ushers in this album and I feel like kind of stays there for the remainder. In this case, it's just this this backseat rumination. There's There's very little hint as to why there's a despondency or or what it's going to entail. It's just kind of this little ugly feeling you go in because you never want to be too calm because to be too calm is almost to be lifeless. It's not the first piece to do that, but it's it's pretty harrowing for it. Well, that's like when I said at the very beginning that it kind of looms. It's th- These ideas aren't very upfront, but they're kind of there in here. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not, they're not in your face. We're not being thrown, having them thrown at us, but they kind of loom over the whole arc of this track. And I agree, at least as we go into the next track, that they do stay. They don't go anywhere. We get a sense of that as we go into track two, which is applauded assumptions the tone is still that that sort of doppler effect that we were getting in the first track but now there's a lot more stuttering going on there's a lot more speed seemingly in the track itself and it's hitting brighter tones it's hitting the higher register with a lot of the uh, percussion work that it's putting in there it's a little more upbeat and by that i mean we have a beat um (laughs) it has a beat yes uh i mean for for starters, you have this this fourth, just kind of like hammering out fourth interval, uh, very mechanically. And whenever I hear that, I always think of Steve Reich with these mechanical intros, the very min- minimalistic approach. But it exists atop these little wisps and pops, a more like acoustic-driven soundbite that may very well be wholly electronic, but, you know, that's the... That's the singularity. They're becoming more more acoustic as we go. Actually, this, that's reverse singularity. But this track and its intro uh, feels like something you would probably hear in a club, and it builds to that especially, too. Like yep. it, it feels more dance floor oriented than, of course, the intro track did, which was a lot more reserved. Mm-hmm. But one thing I do want to point out, it wasn't exactly a flaw, but it was something I noticed right away. The beat itself was very metronomic. He was, he was going you know, crazy on just keeping that regular rhythm involved with the actual most basic setting. Well, that's what's entailed in kind of a club approach. I mean, that's <laughs> that's almost what you want, because obviously, unless you're IDM, you're going to do a little extraneous things. I, I really feel that his purpose here was to, uh, sort of as a single for this album. I don't know what the single was off the top of my head, but it, it, this, if I were to pick one, it would be this. Um, for instance, even just after a few bars of that intro we described, it opens into a few phrases that are really club-oriented. Uh, I, first of all, we get a little bit of a, a divide here, little transitions that he repeats um, that almost sounds like talking in the background. Well, how much more clubby can you get than that? It sounds like you can hear the, the background samples of, of a party transpiring, and they just shine through for an instant, and then we recede back into the much more pervasive club sample, which is, is full of these... Fuller chords, uh, very electronic, but almost almost mimicking like a woodwind sound. And then that's followed by another party transition. But throughout all these uh, different parts of the melody, or stuff that's more melody-oriented, 
because uh, not all of it is really one percussion piece or harmony or melody or anything like that. There seems to be a lot of mid-ground working here. And that's in those sure. stutter pieces, the, the chopped up, almost abbreviated, either at the beginning or at the end of the tone. That fact and that piece right there, those, those little tidbits of information that are kind of breaking through the longer form is why I'm going to, I, I honed in on the actual beat itself. It's something really interesting going on there. And I know the actual uh, beat is kind of make being a cohesive piece here, but it's, it's almost just trying to strike too much of a middle ground. He's in one place going very much a, like you said, single oriented. If I'm not mistaken, this is the single. No, it's, it's actually both seconds. What you're describing right now is part B. So what I described just uh, a second ago was part A. And in that case, yes, it is extremely regular. Um, and then we have that shift, of, as I said, it was followed by another, um, by another sample of people talking in the background. And then part B enters in. And this is defined by extremely experimental use. Exactly the, the kind of rhythm, rhythmic approach that, he, that I described above, where he uses these like brackets of regularity, of course you can follow it, but then within that, I noticed that he really tends to get pretty spastic at times, especially towards the ends of these phrases. And then, of course, uh, texturally, you're looking at a very grumbly bass in this section. Again, very regular, but lots of detail. And what's most interesting is that, that tendency towards, towards spasmodic behavior. All that said, though, he tends to reach a more approachable sound than a lot of his contemporaries. Absolutely. I feel like this track, it's a lot more engaging for someone who might not be into, main, not mainstream, but like out there experimental techno. And also on top of that, for me, something really familiar about this is that the, he, the, the electronic tones he's using that are along the MIDI scale remind me of retro gaming. It's not necessarily video game music, but there are specific tones within this work and certain notes that sound like something I would have heard in some of my favorite compositions that would be, from the Nintendo age. Yeah, that would be what I described as like those those uh, woodwind sounding things, almost. Almost, and it's it's when those stutter pieces turn almost turn into the sixteen bit MIDI longer tones, and even that that gets a, a little bit chopped up. That gets just kind of spliced in and out as the song goes along. All these things. It's texturing very, very well. It's it's a nice scape, a nice taking a piece and really fooling with it, shifting it, making those tonal shifts. Mm -hmm. But this just shows that he knows how to really work with cadence. He rises, he falls, and he really knows how to work with that complexity. But he's still remaining very unobtrusive as far as the melody is concerned. He still remained within a very specific sort of system. The melody itself does get a little experimental, but it doesn't breach the mold. He instead uses tones as opposed to complexity to really express it. I gather that that's, um, that's probably a goal on his part, considering the title Applauded Assumptions. I feel like this is playing around with what you are expecting it to do in some sense, and then kind of counteracting it with something that isn't as expected. And this is sort of a, a foreshadowing to, I think, uh, a point that's probably going to, going to arise later in this album, which uh, comes out of that same like despondency and a, and a dissatisfaction with like um, what he feels comfortable with as as being art, as being released art. Um, but that it's a little bit early to, to sort of go down that rabbit hole. I think at this point, it, 
I do believe that on one level, this is purely meant to be to be played as a bit of a club track and enjoyed and and I don't know, probably not meant to be as unpackaged, despite the fact that I think in terms of form, this really is doing quite a few complex things. It's actually sort of pursuing this in retrograde fashion. We have like this part A followed by this part B, and then we sort of flip it back on its head with a part B prime that is the absolute culmination of this entire piece. It, it uses the same exact ry rhythmic layer as we got in the first part B, but then it's, it's superimposed by this melody that again defines the second tier I defined earlier. Those, those intervals that are really, really strong, a simple, strong melody, um, that just packs a punch over what he's already doing, over the first tier again, the rhythmic stuff. And both of them just combine so well to, like, it's like the expected climax for this piece, but it is a, a satisfactory, that, that makes it sound almost, uh, almost, um, like an insult. It's actually... It's satisfying. Yes, it's satisfying, exactly. You wouldn't say satisfactory, it's a satisfying. Um, and then it kind of, like, unwraps itself by turning it back on its head. We shave it back to the to part A, and then finally, it's the closing material that wraps both of these things together. And then we get the same outro, uh, that we got in the intro. It's the same exact section. So I actually was really involved with this, despite the fact that maybe there's an expectation, or an assumption, as he implies, uh, to take this in a more superficial uh, manner. And I think that's probably my biggest complaint for this song. I, guy's got a heck of a lot of chops. Just in sticking with that melody, that, that sort of basic form that he started with, it goes through so many different motions and really does do some pretty amazing things. He's really good. Right away. Right up front. He's really good. But I can see that he definitely do more with this. He can definitely do a lot more on top of what he's already created. Well, we are only at track two, of course. There we go. And you also don't want to start at ten. You want to get there. You want yeah. to take a trip. And... It, it, and in that B section that you were talking about, Steve, I think it's important to note that it's not completely divorced of stuff that was in track one and that we'll get later in the album. There are deeper tones that come in that part B and that evolved part B that still hint on those those things that we were talking about, the darker side, this, you know, all of those things that were kind of alluded at. Well, yeah, even the section that follows that, there's a transition in there where we sort of revisit the ambient material in yeah. part, one, part one, sure, like, kind of like these metallic, out-of-tune instruments stepping in to sort of bridge the gap between that, between that B prime uh, and the closing material at the end. It's, it, I don't know, I, I just think he was taking me on a form journey through yeah. this track. If, if you're not as intrigued by the individual moments, even though I really was and I was waiting for and expecting uh, B-Prime, I, I am still just, I walk away from this piece, you know, satisfied, as you put it. There you go. Um, now we get into the track that Steve's been waiting for. Yes. So track three is called Quiet One, and it's featuring Rob Crow of Pinback. And I had to go into the spiel, because the second I saw Rob Crow's name, before sure. I even listened to the album, I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm going to write a spiel. Something to note about this track, immediately when it starts, it's unique in the way it mixes its acoustic guitar. There's an acoustic guitar that's featured, but it's used more of a soundbite, and it's chopped up, so it's not a direct strum. It's clearly a soundbite of what was strumming acoustic guitar that you would expect in an indie rock band, and then he's kind of cutting it up, giving these harsh cuts to it, to give it a texture that's very unique even for a techno or, or whatever we're calling this genre, but this experimental... Electronica, hip-hop, 
ambient prog. I don't know. Whatever we're calling it, it's it, this is something unique that I've not really heard a lot of, except for with maybe like true techno artists like Daft Punk who use instruments often. I've not really heard something like this. I thought the same exact thing. I mean, just as an intro, yeah, it, it's it's wildly original uh, as far as I know. It hasn't really been done, and it it. It sort of is is an inversion of what you'd expect from an acoustic guitar because with those harsh cuts you describe, that's something almost you don't want to do. Like to an acoustic guitar, you want the gradual decay because that's what people go to the acoustic guitar for. I I think that blended perfectly with the vocals as they come, and of course they they are Rob Crow's vocals. Uh, I would describe him best with as having a very warm, integrated vocal style. That's sort of exactly what I loved about his work back in Pinback. What I mean by that is they don't. He doesn't aim to really stand apart from the music in a spotlight. Instead, he aims to kind of blend in and become a part of the music. There's certainly like a pop structure here, and he just wants to become another instrument and and croon along. Uh, but in terms of a musical pop structure, in terms of chordal pop structure, you're getting chords here that are sort of strangely deceptive. Little strange inversions of chords that are actually more the accents and the focus. Um, and I sort of gather that Rob Crow wasn't just like featured here, but in fact like a full-on collaborator. Because in these chord progressions, there's just too much of him in this. I feel like it's 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 mostly him at work here, and then the percussion, I think, is what you see in Prefu 73's work. And what's That's something different. And what's interesting about that percussion is it takes more of a hip-hop-ish tone. It's not really specifically hip-hop, but at least in the flow of the rhythm, you kind of get a sense of that kind of beat work. It, I, I use the term hip-hop loosely. We've heard a large range of hip-hop. Well, you know what? That brings back the phrase abstract hip-hop. Because right. it feels like a hip-hop... Uh, a traditional hip-hop backbeat that was just, again, turned on its head. Everything yeah. in this album is just turned on its head a little bit. And it's got uh, Scott Heron's um, trademark spin, you know, with just shifting beats here and there. And that's what makes it sound just a little bit different. Well, it's different. It's calming. I think that's what I got most from it. Hip-hop but in this percussion see, being calming is a curious thought. The, the percussion wasn't the most calming thing, though. To me, it was really more of the vocals that were calming, and of course, the and of course the uh, the acoustic guitar in it in a very very unique way because it's not how, as I said, you would traditionally expect it. Something important to note also at this point in the album is a, a term that we're going to come back to a lot is this is one of the from the first three tracks that we're getting. This is a much thicker track. Mm -hmm. there, there's a, almost a substance to this track. That, not to say that there wasn't any substance in the other tracks, but you feel a viscous actual flow in this track. You know, there's stuff, there's space, there's things. And it, it feels more fleshed out than the previous two tracks. And that's something that we're going to come back to as we go through the album. Absolutely. And I, that's, that's kind of what sort of in, in, like introduced me to it. I feel like, again, that the second track wasn't really that, if you're looking at it at, at, through club eyes, it's not really going to, you know, dive you into the meat. Here, we do that because of what you're describing like just the nature of being in a thick environment it's sort of like in enveloping you in a way yeah. so it made me just i was i was enthralled in listening to this i couldn't i couldn't stop i actually played it several times before i continued in the album that thickness i liken to like the oppressive not really oppressive just the knowing feeling you get in a forest. If for those listeners that have actually been into nature, because I know we tend to have a lot of city people listen to us, 
Well, we're recording in Brooklyn. There's that. But I've been camping. And I've been actually camping, not little safe playgrounds and, and things like that. And you actually do live for most of the week out of city boundaries, so yeah. you got some cred there. There is a, a, a presence in a forest, whether it's, you know, you think you're being watched or something like that. It's sort of a, just an, a, a closed nature to walking amongst trees and things like that. But at the same time, this song is at odds with that idea. It's also got sort of a reflective, once again, a jagged, a sharp nature to it. With the clipped guitar, with the chopped up piano, with a lot of the things having a very short introduction or exposition of the actual note. It's it's an odd combination that works very well. For all of that, and for all that really interesting idea he's working with, again, it's another one of these songs that just lacked some impact for me. Lacked something to really make me stand up and start, like, going, wow, I'm enjoying it. It's very intriguing. But it's more intriguing for me on a cerebral level as opposed to an emotional level. I'll agree with you there, um, right after disagreeing with you. I mean, the fact of the matter is it depends on what you see as impactful. I find that sort of enveloping... Uh, granted, of course, it's not reaching out. Of course, everything we we're describing here kind of amounts to pulling you back. It makes you sit down or lie down more than anything else. Of course you're not going to stand up and I don't think that's the goal. The track is called Quiet One. And if you look at the lyrics here, I think it really it, it really delivers on this question and starts to paint more specific uh, picture of the despondency I described before. Ask a humble question, take it away from your heart, and it's easy to see clear to your brain. And by saying goodbye, we have signed this release, and we're no longer responsible for that. And the chorus begins, feeling so low on the roof, feeling so low on the roof. And your lie, as far as I know, but that isn't very far, but your eye and ammo is low, and I can't see anything farther than I can go. And then the bridge at the tail end goes on to say, in this season, there's a version of your heart, this decision you have kept alone. Someday we will be alone, and one day you will smile. It's, it's such a, a sort of depressing look at someone who is just so down or cannot see the light at the end of the tunnel, whether that is indeed the character in place or whether that's merely filling in for the person trying to reach out to the said character. Again, it's a little unclear as to whether this isn't like a first person or third person because we get so few tracks that, are actually, uh, that actually do have lyrics. Um, but it delivers upon the same exact the same feelings that we got in the beginning. This is not the kind of track that's going to reach up. This is the track that's going to just... It, it, I know we use rumination a lot on the podcast for a lot of things, but in this case, I feel like it's a little bit more... It's a little bit more recessed than that. It's, it seems like all-out despair. It's not just thinking about things. It's actually something that could perhaps set you back permanently. Well, it seems more internalized than yeah. other narratives we've had before. Absolutely. And, of course, all the, the, the texture here is perfect for that environment. You know, a, a thick environment is such that it's not just going to envelop you. It's actually going to hinder you. Yeah. And I think that's where I'm really having a disparity between what I know Steve believes and what I think you believe, Matt. I don't... I'm not in this guy's head yet. I, I think that just put me in his head, and that's well, exactly why I, I latch onto this song in a more personal way as the first track on this album that does that. But the, 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 the one thing I'd point out is the vocals are beautiful, but the lyrics are very shrouded. It's hard to pick out these words. Yeah, it's but... hard to get the message other than a snippet of word here and there. And that can be more than enough to really put you know forth the impact or the feeling of a song or something like that. But honestly, it, it really didn't just mesh 
a hundred percent for me, and I didn't dive in. I couldn't. I couldn't be there. Well, granted, that connects with an earlier point of mine, which is the fact that his vocals really do try to blend in with the music. So I admit they're not the most like you're not just going to grab uh, grab them in an instant. Of course, I had to read into even transcribe that, uh, re-listen to transcribe it. But I do think it's appropriate to sort of approach it from a backseat position. It's not that I think that that's necessarily a fault to like read into lyrics or really listen close to lyrics i think there are plenty there are plenty of situations in which um sort of vague vocal deliveries will actually enhance the overall emotion and i think this is one of them i think this is this track also when connecting to track four which we'll get into in a moment really begins the world building of this album and we really get a sense of that instrumentally i feel on track four which is through a lit and darkened path, parts one and two. The song's a bit longer than previous tracks because it goes through several movements, but this song kind of travels. It moves through what feels like a very strong setting that was started to build in track three. And I really think that we kind of get a sense of what Steve's talking about, more so even in this song that started to come up in the last. We almost, yeah. to start with, we almost get glitch percussion. Absolutely. Which is, it's not just stuttering or, 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 or abbreviated pieces. It's, it's, it's pretty much legit glitch. But that's just a more percussion bass. On top of that, only way I could, I could explain this is dragging vibrations. The vibrations themselves, these long tonal uh, chords, are, they're not just simple notes. The way they kind of ebb and flow in and out of different ranges, and the way it's almost like he's dragging something along a, a note is really, really interesting. Well, uh, there's something interesting here because, uh, first of all, your your segue was that this was more of a tra- obviously with the track entitled "Through Lit and Darkened Path." You know, you get a sense that you're sort of traveling. This, these, these are the, the events that transpired to sort of lead you to where you are, perhaps, on this album. Um, in, in that, with using that avenue, we have a pretty abstract approach. Um, and that brings me to what John said. There's a kind of tonal approach here that is not... It, it's very evasive. The tonal center, for instance, is extremely difficult to pin down. And the percussion essentially freestyles, you know, within the confines of, of a 4-4 of a four, four time signature. Uh, back to the tonal changes, you get just like subtle changes here and there and very odd keyboard inserts. Uh, two motifs that actually resurface. And then they kind of, when combined, feel as though they're not even like diatonic. And actually, when they're combined, they feel as if they're almost in atonal or perhaps in two separate key signatures in their own right it it's really an evasive intro and it, it took me a while to sort of like get into this until perhaps the strings came in that was sort of a big change for me in this track where i started to sort of realize what he's doing and and start to change your perceptions over the course of time and from there on and it, even in context, uh, retrospectively looking at the intro, this piece began to take on almost like masterpiece levels because the strings step in in a pretty big way, also kind of just those straight eighth notes things, just hammering on in that sort of minimalist Steve Reich fashion, but they also start to unravel as time goes on here. And re- they're really beautiful in their own way, but the, the chords are just, 
at this moment are just kind of hard to capture and then the rhythm also starts to unwind like there's a beat just a, a string note rather just before or just after the beat and then this delivers us into a transition that I assume takes us into what is uh, two of the song, but the transition is almost like a, a breather. We just get these little like sloops, you know, from right on the right ear, from the left ear. Yeah, I know I'm the top of my descriptive game today, but part B I think is is where this took off wholeheartedly. It's a seven four time signature, and <laughs> you got something to say, John? Oh, I have I'll lots let, of I'll let you go. This this one I this Otherwise, is I'll just go. By far my favorite part of the entire album, this B section. It's it like like Steve said. It's a seven-four uh, time signature, with allusions to being a full eight-four or a two-one. I don't know. How do you break that down? Well, yeah, probably eight-eight-four, well, or rather eight-eight, because you you, you it, sort it of get the sense. It wants to be there. It wants to be there. One it, element does, and that's the strings, and that's what's so amazing about this. The strings, all the elements from the A section are here, but the strings are in conflict with the tempo. In such a beautiful way, I love every little thing that they do. I'd put it this way. If you're going to count this, you know, as a full 7-4, you want to follow the strings because they're, uh, or rather 7-8, excuse me. Um, if you're going to count the strings in a full 7-8, then you'd follow the strings because they're right on the eighth note. And then, finally, um, you would just repeat that and go through another 7-8 section. But after a while, it's not quite so even. The strings keep time, sort of. And then they get kind of drugged up. It's almost as if the strings, recorded or otherwise, maybe they're all synth, it's as if they were just set to the tick and then adjusted in post-production. As if he just took some little notes and then moved them before, moved them after, so that things don't quite align right on the beat. And it it's, makes everything sound just like it's stepping out of itself. And perhaps if you focus on those that delay a little bit, then you do want to almost count this up to a full even eight. It's a disjointed approach at rhythm that almost fails to deliver, and that's exactly what he's trying to convey. It gives a very distorted, drugged, almost trippy kind of feeling because it's those moments like in life where you can feel something's a little off, whether you're not feeling well or something's bothering you, but you kind of know that something's wrong, but you're not quite sure what. That's what auditorily this kind of gives off. It's difficulty. Yeah. It's, in music form. It's, it's throwing you off somehow, but you can't really identify readily how. And this is not even the final element. That's There's almost a C section. Or maybe a combination A and B section. It's a little bit hard to follow because this next section goes back to sort of a four count, an eight count, however you want to do. At least it's an even number now. Mm -hmm. This is almost as distorted. Mm-hmm. Or maybe even more so, because now that it's in an even count, and it is a little bit more digestible, I guess, it's something a little bit easier to flow with, this has its own difficulties, its own jarring moments uh, to go along with it, which is, it, it kind of boils down to the strings again. Well, the strings become way more frantic now, they're being played way faster, and, and in a way that's almost creating a white noise effect. I didn't pick up whether they were necessarily going faster. It's more just like he's combined the elements again, just kind of like what he did in track two. It's like, well, you close by sort of bringing together 
uh, by bringing together the best of your two sections. And I see that's kind of what he's doing here. He's bringing together the best of part one and part two. Um, there's more of an, uh, a digestible accent. You have more of an emphasis with the bass like on the one and then this drum pop on the four. Um, and then toward the end here, we really fall apart. It's, it's as if, you know, it just broke apart digitally. It's like the, the Matrix, you know, just broke it apart. And then all of a sudden you're left with this terrifying vocal outro that sounded borderline undead. I it mean, was creepy. That was just for like, the last like ten like, seconds, baby. It's like a vocal, a male vocal that seems like it's been slowed down, reversed, flipped, and then twisted. Yeah, run through the ringer. Something you would see on like an Insidious movie trailer, where you just hear these weird sounds in the ethereal background. It, it definitely kind of adds to warping of the whole track. But that kind of wrapped up warpingness is an e interesting combination with. I think the strings sounded frantic, not necessarily because they were moving faster, but because they were cluttered. And they were cluttered because I think there was just more yeah. of them. Yeah, well, even they, they sounded cluttered even when they were in the sort of slow 7-4. So it's like, and then, it's amazing how he can actually make something that is regular sound cluttered just through his little alterations. And, and then you were used to that in the 7-4. And then, the seven, yeah, then you're used to it. And, and then, then he, he you, Fs with it again. That's I, right. He's got to go here, through the three different stages. This is some of the most interesting work on the album for me because it's he's he's combining his his use of tempo He's combining his use of clipped nature, of really being able to abbreviate sounds and the melody itself, mm -hmm. and he's really getting experimental. He's really getting unusual with some of his choices, with some of his ranges. Pretty much just every every facet that we typically talk about, he's doing something odd here with. Um, he's doing odd things with form, he's doing odd things with rhythm, he's doing odd things with tones. Uh, yeah, I, I can only chalk this thing up to retrospectively, because again, it can be a little jarring going into, but it's also it's also just wowing you, you know, one after the other. I would just consider this as a whole to be an abstract masterpiece. It was one of my favorites on the album. A, a six minute, 48 second, just solid core for this album. Yeah, um, and that delivers us to track five, Inside, which is another pretty phenomenal exercise in texture, but we don't go too far with form. This was a track that was a little bit more regular. It doesn't it doesn't really go in, into multiple sections. It's a little bit more stagnant. Um, for instance, we also have a little bit simpler chord progression, more of like a major relative minor thing going on here. And then 45 seconds in, I would call this probably the meat of and, and the remainder of this track, apart from little breathers here and there. And this is this sort of piano-dominated uh, percussion-driven track. The piano, in fact, what initially, when it starts, seems to be the pervasive instrument, and then as you realize uh, later on, it really is just on a constant loop. It really doesn't change or go into anything new. Instead, the percussion becomes the driving force, um, and, and yeah, as a whole, this can get a little bit repetitive. So, I don't know. Maybe it was just the fact that not much could have actually followed uh, the previous track. Well, okay, they're working within a very simple of, uh, framework of the percussion, and percussion has been, to my eyes, one of the most limiting factors on this album. He wants to work within the frame of the percussion itself, mm -hmm. which is acceptable. It's music. You go to a beat, but considering track four, where they really just lets the percussion actually evolve with the song itself, here to have a beat clap, beat beat clap kind of a thing going on here yeah eh, that said it's layered extremely well there's it's, a lot oh, yeah. of elements coming in and out it's more of a with the piano versus the that main echoey melody 
uh, to contrast it, the back and forth between the two was sort of a nature versus synthetic kind of a thing going on there. It was evocative of a couple of different ideas. I'm still not really in his head. And it's still within that safe percussion framework, but it it ha- it gets spacious. It gets built. It does. It's still very well designed and made. I will say this: it has about maybe two two distinct sections where it kind of switches it up, like around one fifty. Um, we take a bit of a breather, and everything kind of recedes, but then we kind of go back to the same thing, as if it's meant to convey, like, record skipping. You know, we just sort of pick up right where we left off, and then it's through the loops, same percussion loops, same piano loops. Around three minutes, we break again, this time with female vocals, perhaps the only secondary element here. Uh, in, from a textual standpoint, this is the only other thing. Um, they step in, um, but then they step out, and then it seems like we're back to the same thing again. It's It's... I don't know. I could only say that artistically this was meant to convey the, well, the cycle. Well, the cycle I, that one can't break. I think artistic- It's a bit of a heavy-handed way of doing so. I think in, um, as far as that goes also, it's meant to convey with a title like Inside, this kind of more natural, cyclical nature. Like yeah. your body is very cyclical, your circulatory system, stuff like that, just goes through the motions. Awake or sleep, you go through those motions. Mm-hmm. And I think it's... The repetitiveness is supposed to convey that kind of repetitiveness of your internal organs as well as the repetitiveness of the nature of the life around you as well. Yeah, we don't want arrhythmia going on here. And I accept that as part of the artistic... Okay. (laughs) No, I'm not going to do that. Arrhythmia? You want to buy arrhythmia? (laughs) Okay. I don't don't think it's for sale. I don't know what he was saying. I'll try it for a minute and send it back, but I don't like it. Okay. Yeah, I, I get the heartbeat nature. That is a little tropey. I want to point that one out. Sure, but, but it's, it's an acceptable but, part. I mean, if you're going to be doing something like that, it suits the structure he's building. Here. Exactly, it's an artistic expression. And I think this, on honestly, track five only exists to be a transitionary period between four and six, because really you couldn't have those tracks back to back. And I think it succeeds in kind of moving us through the cyclical motion that lands on infrared. That is a very good point. And yeah, it pretty much. Uh, it summarizes exactly how I felt about this track coming out of it. I mean, I will agree, as we all pretty much mentioned, it was the first track that was audibly repetitive to my ears, um, but it was just a nice track to sit with. There's very little on this album that I think would be repetitive to the point of boring. Instead, he just puts you in a place, and he was a little bit more comfortable with it in this one, and I still believe there was a, a, a point behind it. Um, and it leads to the droney outro, that again makes the callbacks to the ambient material on this album. So from there we go to track six, Infrared, featuring Sam Dew. This was one of my all-time favorites in this album. I dare say probably, probably the top. It was, it's almost, in, it's almost too simple. It, it begins really just with this dominant figuration of like a five flat three one. This just downward minor outline. Um... This almost sounds like a vibraphone playing that recurring figuration over and over and over. But amidst that, we create a very grand environment. There's lots of reverb throughout here. It kind of is a callback to that sort of thickness that we got earlier on in track in track three. Absolutely. Um, and also, what the most important thing here: these like heavy, detrimental chords and these light vocals just gliding alongside uh, alongside them, and the kind of sort of unwind then what leads us into the verse and that verse is a melody that is is so beautiful and a lyrical delivery that is uncanny all of these things for you i only see your heart just a flicker of you i see it from afar 
The only sign of life, pale faces line the halls. The only flicker of life, shadows are on the wall. You're an infrared. You're an infrared. And if you go into this chorus here, this repetition of you're an infrared, he holds at that final line. Um, and we end on the sevenths, beautiful sevenths, followed, again, this is a more of an impact here with the, those heavier, uh, rather heavier, more detrimental chords than even we had in the first place. It's, it's, I don't know, I thought it was stunning, especially with the slides accompanying those chords, you know, where they, everything seems to fall back. Um, you can't, you can't possibly make this track positive. Instead, everything just falls back to the same place. Again, always back to where you started. What's really interesting about all of that, though, is that all of that intricacy still falls within a very kind of R&B feeling song. It's not a typical R&B song, but you definitely get a sense of that beauty, that sweetness, but within this kind of darker tone. In a soft tone. It's very, very sweet in its softness. Yes. But there's one element that Steve has yet to mention. It's actually my favorite element on this song. While the tempo was extremely familiar to Inside, and I almost noticed that right away, the percussion was phenomenal. Instead of an actual, like, bass-oriented, uh, clap-oriented percussion like the previous track, we're getting clips, we're getting taps, we're getting snaps. We're getting something that I, I can only make it akin to, a, a person snapping their jaw. And these are being played in and out in very, very short intervals. But see, The percussion is almost non-percussion it's almost disassociated with the tempo it, yes and it's great for that's it. just it it's disassociated with the tempo and all right i respect you for for sort of honing in on that detail because it's disassociated to me it comes across as more color than the overall texture the texture but, here no, no. and the driving rhythm of course is those heavy chords which really are just again this is what i sort of preface this by saying it was very simple all you really have is just this driving like two beat a slow trudging two beat fashion I, I feel this more in two than i do in four it's just up then we fall back up then we fall back and it's it's i don't know it's like walking in an alleyway but they do repeat they do still line up with the with the actual beat itself and it's the long form. It's like four full measures that they actually go through before they start repeating themselves. That that long form of what's going on there with just the, the more unusual and very... It, it is very background. But once I started hearing it, it was nice little cracks in what this character is. Nice little cracks. Some of the madness that we've been seeing in this album poking through. Well, it was a great point of texture and of... of of setting for the song itself. It is an astute observation considering that almost reflects what the uh, vocals are doing. Like the vocals in many ways sound defeated despite the fact that you also mentioned this is a very sweet sounding song. It, it actually borders on romantic. Yeah. But the funny thing is within that there's a real, <laughs> there's not a light at the end of the tunnel. Again, yeah. like you're an infrared, you're an infrared. This, the idea, the concept that it's really evasive to you. You can't quite see them. You only, I only see your heart just a flicker from you. I see it from afar. The only sign of life, pale faces line the halls. All of this is, this is a, a, a heart-wrenching track about someone that longs to know someone better than they do, and instead all they get is just superficiality or they get beaten back, it, a disconnect between them and, and what they want to be personal with. What's also interesting on an emotional level about this song is that it kind of picks up about halfway through. 
it doesn't get fast per se, but it picks up a bit from how it had been kind of trudging in the first half. But that just kind of adds almost a panic or franticness to this wanting to find that person, this this realization of how unreachable and attain, unattainable it is, which mm-hmm. just adds an urgency, which I think really hammers home the emotionality of the track. I even get the same urgency sort of toward the ends of the chorus, where every section ends with you, you're an infrared, you're an infrared, and then finally that little ooh, you know, in the background, mm-hmm. and that captures the that beautiful ninth chord steps through there. Uh, it's just, it's, I mean, come on, if you end your courses with a ninth... There you go. That gets the Steve Seal of approval. It's an old trick, but it's a good one. From here, we go to track seven. Um, We move into Jacinto Lyric Range. Um, Although Steve might argue with me pronounced differently, I insist it's Jacinto. No. Yeah, no, absolutely not. I actually, Jacinto, I believe it's Spanish. I looked it up. I'm on Italian, uh, John's on Spanish, and Matt is on poor American English. Yes, well, well. Uh, it's actually the name of a Californian and a Spanish city, uh, San Jacinto. Ah. Uh, ah, uh, yeah. So anyway. that city's lyric range. Yes. So well, one of those cities. There's multiple cities named this. Okay. <laughs> anyway. This song starts with kind of the first time on this experimental techno record, we get more of a less natural feeling song synthetic yeah more synthetic it's got tech sounds that you really weren't getting a ton of up until this point except maybe in the second track and so it kind of adds even more to this despondence we've been talking about previously but it was an interesting way to start the track because it put me in a place that wasn't necessarily apparent in the last couple of tracks it seemed to start as a sort of slow burn build them up track but it doesn't really go that far it stays within a very electronic, more typical orientation for me, where, yeah, it's, it's very paced, and the beat is a little bit distorted, but it flows very evenly without really adding too much to itself. Well, you know what? I think this is a better example of the kind of track that, as you mentioned earlier, John well, doesn't leap out. It's like, well, this is real. I mean, I may have disagreed with you in earlier instances, but to me, this is the case of that. It doesn't really leap out at any points, but despite that, I do think it has. It has its perks, and it has its its textural value. I almost would describe the beatwork as being a little bit more tribal here. Um, Matt did at one point, just in our pre-discussion, uh, describe this as being a little bit industrial. And on a re-listen, you know what? I don't think that's as... I don't think that's that's incorrect to say here. There is... It's much heavier. But the funny thing is that in being heavier, it's not really like going towards something that's all out uh, futuristic or, or, or dire. I, I, it's really hard to, to say because you even get other elements. You get those like woodwind sounding things that we got earlier on that uh, to me actually sound a little bit Ratatat-ish, uh, but without the funk. So it's like you don't have that sort of funky drive that Ratatat has. Instead, you just have the sound effect. And I don't know, I was had a hard time determining what this track was supposed to be amounting to. Well, it could be just, uh, one of my theories is it's a perversion on nature. Only because when you start mentioning things like those woodwinds, and the fact that it really reduces the amount of acoustic-oriented elements that we had, we've had a lot of guitar work, a lot of piano work interspersed within these songs, those woodwinds themselves have a little bit of a tremor in them, a little bit of a, uh, an electronification that kept them from sounding 100% natural. It did come off as a bit of a perversion. Yeah. Now that's actually a 
an astute perspective here. I, I, I guess it's really just the kind of track that, much like uh, two tracks ago and Inside, I feel like it's more of a bridge here between the, the what is clearly the more meaty track in this album. Yes, but be it a bridge or not, and I agree, I think it was kind of serving as a bridge. I really enjoyed the beat work on this track. Mostly, I kind of just grooved to it. There wasn't anything super intricate about it. It just had one of those kind of uh, uh, beats that I could just kind of nod along to and kind of almost was hypnotic to me. It also had some swells during the song that kind of added a little bit of faux emotion, kind of a breath almost. Um, but I agree that depth-wise, there wasn't a ton to this track. We get more of that in the tracks to come. Well, I think it's the nature of despondence also, yeah. is that, well, sometimes you're writing very, very detailed diary entries, and sometimes you're just sitting and staring. Yeah, and this um, was a way more <laughs> passive track, I feel like. But but it still had some substance. It just was, on the outset, emotionally, very passive, kind of just there, which I think was intentional. Right, and while it may sound like a cop-out in me saying that, I do truly believe that was intentional. I, I do believe that this album is, is so far pursuing a kind of, like, sometimes you're a little more vocal, and sometimes you recede, and it seems most of the instrumentals here uh, seem to imply that he's just thinking. So, of course, you'd be a little bit it'd be a little bit more abstract as the approach into what he's thinking about. You never quite know. You'll also get the idea that this this character here is somewhat hard to reach because they don't let themselves be easy to reach. And I think that this track also matching up with the next track that we're going about to get into, really, you're passive until the point of when you speak up. And the next track is kind of him speaking up, <laughs> which is so track eight is one hundred and forty jabs interlude featuring Milo and Bus Driver. Now, I want to talk a little bit about this track up front. I was It's one of my favorite tracks on the record, mostly just because as far as it's a song with lyrics, I am a big fan of Milo and Bus Driver. Milo I know very little about, but Bus Driver, his record got honorable mention last year, Perfect Hair, for me, because it's one of my favorite hip-hop records in a long time, and he's a great rapper. So this is your Rob Crow uh, record, uh, not record. This is your Rob Crow piece. Essentially, yes. There you go. Um, I don't have one of those on this album. But what I like about this track and the way it starts is we get kind of a two-part interlude here. It is at at its core an interlude. It's only two minutes and twenty-seven seconds or so, um, and we start with Milo, who starts almost spoken word rapping. It's very matter-of-fact. He's just explaining things about his life, talking about hip-hop and himself. The vocals are almost simple. But yes. what's going on in the background, while also kind of simple, is is some, some, some bass-oriented synth work, some slight, like, dripping sounds. The whole oh, thing is just sweaty and tense all at the same time. But it's also barely anything. I mean, compared to previous work, this this makes a, a an active um, motion to re to recede and really let the vocalist do his thing. And that was so um, beautiful to, to start this track with. It, it was yeah. something different, for sure. Yeah, it's really just like pops, barely anything. It's just a framework, and then later on, strings fill it in a little bit better, and they phase in, they phase out, but they're completely broken. Um... I would really like to get the lyrics here because I, I thought this was worth transcribing. And um, it took we us can a be... bit to just transcribe <laughs> this one. It can be it can be rather evasive, the lyrics on this album, um, but this is pretty on point. My legs are twitching. I feel finicky. Everybody's favorite rapper is too fucking gimmicky. Reminding myself I need to read more Wasley Kandinsky, minus the AdSense money grubber who lives within me while demonstrating to my parents that I can earn a living. 
Take 140 power jabs to the cheekbone. Convert that sensation into a moderately weak poem. I am a laptop that needs to reboot for new software updates. I have ignored my grandmother's phone calls for 47 days. I have been a poor sport while winning at so many games. I don't want to be remembered for a motherfucking thing. Google search how to break out of this samsaric cycle and use my middle finger to smear on far-fetched idols. I don't want to be remembered for a motherfucking thing. You barely need to break that down. There, I mean, Everything that, you know, you try and you get a sense of over the course of this album, he essentially conveys uh, on point. Now, granted, of course, this can just be a perspective. I do believe that this album is pursuing broader things, but this is a snapshot, a, a, um, a, a sample it's of a, a life that might fall into this pattern and fall into the cycle and the rumination that we discussed. This verse is a personification of the emotion we've been getting up to this point. Yeah. It's putting it in an actual person's shoes. I also should should mention that um, Wassily Kandinsky was a Russian painter and art theorist. I've actually known his art for a while. If you, if you say you might even recognize it yourself. I've never known his theories, though, and I assume that's probably more important to this uh, being a theorist, um, uh, considering he was reading Wassily Kandinsky. So... I mean, you get kind of a vivid image of the character at play here, and it's clear there's a moral crisis, it's clear there's an identity crisis. All of these things are just sort of like coming to at the head, um, building to sort of a breakdown, and then he sort of answers that with a kind of flip side, an alternate character that steps in, um, which is the second rapper, and this is Bus Driver. And he continues... I shall plug this frayed scruple until this dopamine beaker becomes base neutral. I can't be remembered because I'm your precondition. You love and hate my dog just like a decent Christian. You've been looking like a wary dog when the drugs outpaced your resolve. Everything's going wrong, but you hear applause. This is a kind of artist's flip-flop, almost. It, it's, it's hard to say, but I mean, also, he goes on to say, you know, nobody gives a fuck about your outlaw, so you celebrate airs so off-putting, like you're trying to make up for your lost footing. It's more of an incisive criticism at this point. Well, I mean, this speaks to what Bus Driver does. I mean, at least on Perfect Hair, his last record, there was a lot of um, approaching the, the current state of hip-hop and then also speaking through the lens of the warped frame of hip-hop kind of becoming a character within this criticism and acting as that character living those cliches almost the beat also transforms along with this character itself going real full-fledged hip-hop it becomes much more rich although interestingly not until after that first stanza the first stanza is actually the music is blended completely with the music of the previous uh rapper and then it really takes off and it, what's interesting is Bus Driver actually starts off a little bit slow, a little bit towards the previous pacing, and his voice, he, his tempo changes as he goes through that first stanza. It's really cool because once he hits the end of it, he's at full rap speed, and boom, here yeah. comes the percussion. And it's not losing the character. Even changing voice, even changing stance from angry to full-fledged aggressive, it's, it's just adding a lot of complexity to what was already built, to the emotion that the first part was doing. Also, I'm not sure, but I do believe there was a point where he actually said, in contrast to the previous uh, rapper, um, 
who said, I don't want to be remembered for a motherfucking thing. I could have sworn that this new one said, remember me for a motherfucking thing. I'm not sure about that because then I believe it's actually flipped again toward the end. So that, of course, would hint most that he's being in a separate character. But at least the, the whole tone of it sounds a little bit more cartoonish. May very well just be uh, bus driver's delivery. But the two styles of, of, of rapping here are really, really... Um, they're, they're jarring to go from one to the next, but it, it conveys the character in such a rich way because you're looking at the more defeated versus the one that's almost over the top or, or perhaps losing sight of what he really wants. And the prior is, the former is over obsessed with it. It's a, it's a transition from thought to action. Yeah. And it's really cool to see that in a single musical piece because not something like that doesn't just come around, around all day. Either you're doing something or you're thinking about something. That's usually a dividing aspect of music itself. doing something and not caring about something. Say, when the drugs outpaced your resolve, everything is going wrong, but you hear applause. It's just going with the flow and perhaps without the, uh, the, the insight or the, the, the self-consciousness that the former has. Transitional material is kind of Bus Driver's M.O. A lot of his rap songs go from point A to point B, and there's an evolution within. And this song fits that structure perfectly. So it, it works great for him. Yes. And, and also, also the trick you were talking about before, where he was rapping at a speed that the music caught up to, is also something he's done before. This is a showcase of not only his talent and speed as a rapper, but it's also an acknowledgement to this character that he's creating. What I really like also about this song is it was concise. It ends... Not abruptly, but you get a verse each, and then it ends. It kind it's, of peters out a re, a, a instrumentally, and then ends. It's also the second shortest song on the album from the actual introduction. It's two and a half minutes long versus most averaging around four. Yeah, yeah it makes its point. What's interesting about this song, though, is it leaves you wanting more, but you shouldn't be getting more. And what I mean by that is you the song ends, and you want more of this narrative. You want more of this story, but it doesn't need to give it to you. You've gotten enough. So the fact that it leaves you wanting and doesn't deliver is kind of the point, I think, also. Fitting into the whole theme work of this whole album. This is this is also finally the first time I really feel like the character that is... If you dive into it, you can really see plain as day there's a character being built here. But this character, it, I wasn't really just empathizing with up until this point. I wasn't in his head yet. Here, here is that glimpse into the mind of what might be turning into a madman at this point. And here I can see it. Here I can actually feel what he's feeling. But it's not even the lyrics. It's just the tone, the vocals themselves. That big shift halfway through and then the complexity. And then towards the end of the song, that kind of slow death of the music itself. The start, the breakdown of it and and just the, the parts being lost here and there as it goes along. That is really just very insightful into the character. Well, I would certainly, and we, we discussed this before, I, I was already with him earlier on this album. I think he had made his point, even on some of the instrumental tracks, and that is a powerful thing to do. Uh, and he certainly made it in some of the earlier vocal tracks with the lyrics there. But of course, yes, they are not as on point. This is a... It's a flat album, a very blatant insight, um, but that's not to detract what it provides for the album. And that is the kind of cherry on top that I think, if it had lacked, it would not be the same album. It adds an impact to something we already knew we were getting, essentially. Yes. It was a driving point. 
it, had this been lacking, we would have had a more abstract album. It's still a great album, but this this kind of wraps it together in a very, very neat package. And it's also very well connected to the ninth track, which also features vocals. Um, See More Than Just Stars. This is featuring Helado Negro. Um, this song has a particular drama that the previous track was l alluding to. Um, it starts off with very heavy synth chords that add that weight. High winds, heavy drums, a very hip-hop-ish beat yes. that isn't as as pervasive as full hip-hop. This is one of those hip-hop sort of stuff oh, going it, on again. It's pervasive, but in more of a trudging sense. Yes. And then along, I mean, it's a very slow 4-4. Four four. And then alongside, you get these little sparse accents. Um, but really, the bass is more of the feature here. It has more depth, more dominance, and more, more motion than I think any other element. Uh, but that said, we do have a melody. This is a, yet another track with lyrics, but it's it's even more defeated than we got back in Quiet One and Infrared. I mean, it, it's... First of all, just look at the lyrics here, again. Complicated Fool. I Just to begin that way, <laughs> I mean, this is, again, more of an incisive criticism, but it's taking the opposite side of the coin. Um, and there's this longing here just to be with you. He slows that down, really drags that out, because the vocals here, the delivery, it's 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 barely a whisper, a whimper. I mean, they're all there. It's two vocalists singing together, but it's it it barely reaches out. Again, so much that so that I, that's why I say the bass is really more of the dominant feature here. It's the the driving force. It has more of a part than these vocalists. It seems, despite the fact that they're 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 all color, they're all ambience. Um, and while the melody is rich, but it is, it's, it's weak, purposefully weak. This also, it, it, it's, it's vibration. The whole song becomes one giant vibration. I think it's mostly the bass that's doing that. The bass, but the vocals, I mean, they're working in unison. They're complementing one another. Right, so you get a little bit of a reverberation between them. But the snare tidbits, the kick drum tidbits, the percussion is frantic. It's kinetic. It drops in ex in and out. It experiments with it. It's it's a it's a, it's a completely at odds with what the the longer form melody work is doing. It's something that's been done several times in this album, and it's something I'm still loving. It's, it goes back to the similar description that we used before. That sort of thick behavior, all of that is is captured. I mean to use the cliche, in the thick of it. You know, I feel like this is see more than just stars. I feel like we're at the point, at least chronologically speaking, in this album where we have kind of dived into the heart of the problem. Maybe we actually just came from it, and this is really just more of the... We're, we're deeper into his psyche at this point. Again, it's all just a matter of getting farther and farther down the rabbit hole. As he says, cosmic rays, you know, making that illusion. They see us growing old. You're crushing me. Shifting tense here. It's all history. They're making me see more than just stars. There's a romance in here, and I know I'm, I'm, I'm reading the, the lyrics in a bit of a splotchy fashion because, again, transcribing is, is a little bit difficult. These are not readily available. And also the nature of the singing. It's so background. It's so weak. Uh, again, oh, such a whimper that you barely even um, can infer it. Well, I think that the lyrics here are kind of continuing to tell a story that we started to get in the previous track, talking about how there was a focus on lyrics in that. 
Here, we're getting a sense of a real, true internal crisis, something that had been hinted at previously in the record, but now it's full-fledged here. Yeah, You're crushing me. Last like, two tracks were all about this actual crisis coming to a head. And it, it, how powerful that phrase alone is, you're crushing me. Like, it's just, it's the weight of everything. Well, it identifies the problem and puts it on someone else, despite that most of this album has actually been putting everything a lot more inward. It's yes. actually been more self-blame than, than blame on someone else. Um, but then finally that they're seeing, they're making me see more than just stars tends to put the romance back into play here. So, <laughs> crisis abound. And then we go into track 10. Mohave mating call and f these last three tracks uh, 140 jabs interludes see more than just starts culminates with Mohave mating call it is probably the culmination for me it's my second favorite part of the album outside section B of well, we've said track four. we've said culmination in different in in different ways before I, I would uh, I would Modify that by saying this is the darkest track yet. I said, I phrased it as, this song steeps comfortably in a large darkness that's been building in the whole record. It's quivering. It's not just vibrating at this point. It's quivering. The strings, the chimes that come in, the most solid of notes are just crystal. They're, they're so fragile. And everything comes off as so sad and knowledgeable of this darkness that's surrounding it. It is so evocative to me that when he starts bringing in off keys, little like almost pinprick notes that that are so close to completely destroying the melody, it is heart-wrenching. You know, we're definitely at the at the, um, at the edge of our descriptive abilities right here because this is. I mean, it's interesting to describe uh, this. What, is, what you get a sense is the same exact pattern that he's used so far in the same tools, but in a more in a more harsh sense, in a more um, in a more visible sense. But, but the interesting thing about the emotionality of this track is that it still has this kind of fragility. Like he could break at any moment. He's not hit his breakdown point yet. He's still falling. Well. I, I don't know. That, well, maybe a little bit half and half. I, I do think that the despondency that I've described has coded just about everything so far, but you could take it in about two ways. Infrared, for instance, was a track that was so longing in its, in its dis despondency that it consequently is more romantic. You can't, well, long for something without being a little bit romantic, without romanticizing it. Right. And then suddenly here, we get a track, and I mean this only tonally, it, it's a track of despair to me. So it makes me feel as if we really have reached the end. And we have gotten so many tracks that hint at, uh, you know, crises here and there. Tracks that are just flat-out malaise. And then this uh, but, but seems the, to be at the bottom. But see, I, the reason, the only reason I don't say it's the bottom and that the next track, track 11, is the bottom is oh, because well. <laughs> at the tail end of this track, it becomes at odds. It goes deeper, and then it there's this conflict of... It gets a little lighter in notes, but it still has the despondency, and it seems okay. kind of twisted. That's a good point, because toward the end of this, yes, we do would seem to have somewhat of a turnaround. It's well, wrestling like, with itself almost. Yeah, it's well. Whenever people think they they've bottomed out, then well, there's always a lower tier. Um, later on in this track, it's true. After we get these like sort of long, more ambient drones, because it's going back to that tool, uh, we we get more of uh, these distinct swells, like in the center, uh, in the real center point of the song. Um, the piece rather these swells enter in here where the chords are just taken over by this this synth and, and they creep up and they 
it's it's dynamics, pure dynamics at this point. They get louder and then they recede, louder and then they recede. But the chord work in that instant is absolutely gorgeous. And then afterwards, we're defined by something new. These out of tune piano melody, uh, and that's that's my favorite part. It, it's it's very strange because they and they do seem to be the melody, even though you'd really define them more as color or as like, eh, they're just stepping in here and there. But they're they're filling out a melody. It's a sparse melody, but it is indeed one. But it's it's forged by singular notes on the piano, and each and every one sounds like it's you know on like an old spinet piano, and it's only it's, it, it's only tempo. hitting like one of those three strings. It's off-tempo, it's off-key, it's doing things that even the earlier percussion, light percussion as it was, it is really showing the cracks in, in this mind. It's really showing the cracks in this personality uh, through the music. It's this this little bits of hope coming through, these little bits of actual growth and, and acceptance and healing and what have you. Choose a descriptor, choose a positive descriptor. They're still not quite solid. It's fallen apart around him, and it's it's almost shameful to watch this. It's almost distraught. It's it's terrible to see like a mind like this fall apart this way. Right, but to get back to Matt's point, it does seem like sometimes the chords want to resolve here. It seems like they want to pick up toward the end. It seems like even the out of tune piano melodies kind of are trying to bring us back. Um, they get more positive only to the point that Hand Cannot Erase got positive. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Uh, episode 142, give it a listen. It was by Steve Wilson, and of course that's about the um, woman who died alone. Horribly, horribly alone. But yet it had some pretty fun tracks, you know? Positive tracks, and within that there's this also despondency. I wouldn't call it despondency there because I, I think it was, <laughs> in that case, we know that the character is, is doomed. Um... And it, it was really more trying to celebrate it. Here, I, I think it's it's less a celebration, but a, a dirge. Well, yeah, and that dirge, I mean, I think really comes to fruition in the final track. Track 11, Open Nerve Farewells, is where I really feel the album culminates, which with the last track, one would think. It starts with a, a very heartbeat-specific rhythm, which, duh, okay. That I kind of saw coming. That said... This is where the album completely falls into darkness. This is where all hope is lost. And it's conveyed very well instrumentally. That heartbeat that kind of gets chopped up and becomes the rhythm conveys this kind of pain that we've been sensing the whole time. The whole rhythm section, though, it, it remains scattered. It remains just broken apart. There's a melody here. And a melody that does undergo a bit of trans, uh, translation and transformations. As transmutation. It, transmutation. Pick Go a trans. Uh, it's, it, it changes cadence. It changes tones as it goes along. But it does represent a sort of through line that, that kind of holds together the piece itself. If we're making this a person, it's that last little bit of sanity holding all the random scattered parts together. And it's... It's bright, it's dark, it goes through a bunch of different emotions, but it's all over the place, and nothing quite matches up, and I'm, I'm very okay with that. Yeah, I don't know, I'm, I was actually maybe a little bit of a naysayer, at least toward the beginning of this track. I thought that the bass, once again, while it was dominant, it had sort of no direction. I do think that was planned, but it was a little unfortunate for my experience. Um, it wasn't really, I think, until the B section as of 1 minute 32 seconds that I 
I was a little more satisfied. The melody steps in here and it's the same perk that we had earlier on in the album and in several different times. The same thing that I think he excels at, Scott Heron, um, and that is those single sparse notes just building longingly and falling despairingly. Uh, a simple melody to sort of complement a very trudging uh, rhythm b beneath it. It's actually one of the sadder things on the album to me in this exact instant because of what a whimper it suggests. We've had other whimpers here, but in this case, it's just this really, really high, tinny sound that sounds so meek and defeated uh, that it just, I don't know. It's to, to, to actually be a melody and a character and a soul at this juncture, at, at the tail end here, is, is as depressing as it comes. It, it's reminiscent of losing all hope. Like, imagine the worst you felt and then feel worse. And that's pretty much where this goes. This well, idea no. this idea that there's nothing left. To have a melody that captures it. Yeah. Because there have been many an album that tried to capture that through an ambient drone, a pure ambient But I'm ambient talking drone. about the melody. The here. melody itself, which is very simple. That's not where the song ends, though. And no. it's sort of, it's, I don't know if it's a trope or not to really do something like this. The only sort of thing I've ever seen is in movies doing something like this. But... The, it's it's not outright stated, but there's almost a cardiac machine musical so, ending to it so yeah, the that so ends in a drone. So the song starts with a heartbeat, as I had mentioned. The rhythm was very much a boom, 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 but then the end, you still kind of get that rhythm back again. It has that boom, 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 but then it goes boom, 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 and kind of has a drone that sounds like a heart monitor failing. Now, whether that was the intent or not. So be it. I don't care. I like the way it ends. Right. You read into it, and, and it really kind of... I said, open nerve farewells kind of reminded me of the idea of opening a vein, and this like this is the last call before the darkest moment. If that's the case, then that's a very circular way to wrap up this track and a great way to finalize the album. Agreed. I ain't starting. <sighs> Matt, Matt gestures at me. I ain't starting. So, yeah. I used to delay, but you've been pushing me up front lately. Well, today... Too bad. Well, too bad indeed, because it is your pick. All right, I'll start us. <laughs> We've been doing a lot of instrumental-heavy electronica albums this year and last year. There have been quite a few. Um, of course, the biggest of note this year was Aphex Twin, which uh, John brought us. And, and, also, and, and Ken Ding Ray. And Ken Ding Ray, which John brought us. And then, of course, there was Flying Lotus, which Tony brought us when he mm -hmm. was a guest. So all of these albums... Highs and lows, they were not all rated equally. Um, some were better, some were worse. This is an interesting pick, though, mostly because this is an artist doing interesting things with artists that I am familiar with, artists with I'm not familiar with. I mean, I'd obviously heard Pinback before, so I recognize the vocalist. Obviously, you've heard me kind of spout my fandom of Bus Driver and how much I enjoy his stuff. There's stuff to be said about all the tracks on this record. I mean, first of all, it's got a pretty strong arc. I mean, the despondence that Steve brings up in the beginning, it's there. It's throughout the whole record. I didn't hear it on a first listen, but as often happens when we yammer on while listening to the record before we review it, we've, we notice things. I'll admit, I did get emotionalities vaguely while I was listening to it on my own, but I couldn't really place them. I needed some clarity, and I found that as we re-listened to it. Um, it's very interesting. A lot of techno records that we, we review or electronica records kind of just go a very club route or a very kind of abstract route. Whereas this kind of is rooted in something very experimental. There's something very approachable about it. It's not nearly as experimental as the Flying Lotuses or the Aphex Twins 
of the world to me anyway. I find that it's much stronger, almost in a pop way, not necessarily as far as pop music goes, but definitely for sure in a sense that it, it feels more mainstream. And I don't mean in the negative sense, I just feel like it is definitely more approachable. Um, I did enjoy the record. I think that there, there's a, a bevy of talent here, without a doubt. I mean, he's a talented, talented DJ. He knows how to work a synthesizer. Yeah, <laughs> without a doubt. Um, I like his his specific vocalist choices. I think each of them were calculated, and they couldn't have come sooner or later at this record. This is not a record where you could restructure it. I think even the songs that we felt were a little lackluster, they were to bridge the gap, and that they really make the structure of this record. It's a solid structure. You can't really do anything else with the order of this album. Um, that said... I did enjoy it a lot more than some of the Electronica albums we had reviewed before. So for me, this is definitely not average. It's a little bit above that. Um, it's by far not a perfect record because, you know, there were still moments where we felt that it slowed down or that we were kind of getting a little lost in it, whether it was intentional or not. For me, this sits nice and strong at a 4.4. It's not a 4.5. It's not upper echelon quite for me, but it's definitely approaching that. I think that I think some of it might have been a little lost on me because it's not my genre of choice, but I readily admit that there's a heavy amount of talent here. There is, and I pause for dramatic effect, there is... As you do. I really, really like Electronica. Let me just, if you have never heard me speak about it before, I really like it. Yeah. This is really... A great bridge between, as Matt said, the experimental and the mainstream. The stuff that is easily addictable and the stuff that really pushes the boundaries. There's a, a heck of a lot going on. But one thing we talked about is there's a lot of interlude songs. Songs that get you from that previous really good thing like Through a Lit and Darkened Path to Infrared. Well, Inside is in between those and it's used as a piece to transition. Well... A song that's pushing four, five, six minutes, like in several instances on this album, should not be a transitionary piece. Not at its core. It should still be a piece unto itself. And that's a big detractor for me. The other big detractor is that it took a while to really get into it. It took those first three tracks before I hit track four. Before I hit my favorite song, Through Lit and Darkened Path. I love that. Especially the B section. But the whole thing as a piece is just awesome. Seven, almost seven minutes of really solid material. But it takes longer than that to really get through it. So it starts a little bit slow, all said and done. It's, it's got a lot of pluses and minuses going for it. Some parts were a little bit too towards one or towards the other. Though I'll never complain about being super experimental after Flying Lotus. All said and done, it's a solid album, but I'm not going to be putting it even even low fours. It's a solid four. I would have preferred, just at its core, more experimentation. Because this guy, when he does wicked things, is amazing. When he experiments, when Prefuse 73 does something weird, it's great. The safety net of the club structure might be a little bit too prevalent to really push it above a four. 
I think this is an album that doesn't overstay its welcome, yet I suspect it probably could have gotten away with that. Frankly, this album I had a strange experience with because really on the first listen, I was ready to hike this up really, really high. I had one of the most impressive first listens, I think, than most of the, the albums that we've listened to this year. And I think that's really important because a lot of albums, of course, change their impressions over the course of time. And we have some things that kind of grow on us, some things that grow off of us. In this case, it was a really, really strong first impression. The first listen through, I was just enthralled. I wasn't bored for a second, barely, maybe some parts. I was like, yeah, okay, a little repetitive. But as I said, this is just an album that doesn't overstate its welcome. I think lots of things on this album were extremely concise. Um, and it seems to have more masterpieces, as I see it, than most of the albums we look at. We get so many albums where it's just like, all right, one really strong one, maybe two really strong ones. I adored Applauded Assumptions. I adored uh, Quiet One featuring Rob Crow. I adored Through a Lit and Darkened Path. I thought, again, that was just a flat-out masterpiece. Could have done without Inside, perhaps. Adored Infrared. Um... After that, there are some holes. 140 jabs is absolutely amazing, though. Um, and then the end, actually, on a first listen, I think was a little bit... Uh, it lost me a little bit toward the end. I still think it packed an emotional punch, um, but it wasn't quite as strong as the earlier tracks. On a re-listen, it was actually somewhat of a flip. It was like, I may detract a little bit of that from the tracks that I previously raved about, and then maybe add a little bit more to the end. I don't think it really lost much of its steam, um, it, it just, it knows where its highlights are, and again, it doesn't overstay its welcome. This is not really that long of an album, and considering he, as techno musicians do, do inevitably do go into, like, repeated sections, he somehow makes it interesting from a form perspective, like, through and through. There are just very, very little holes. And to go back to your point, Matt, while it's unfair perhaps to compare this, you know, to all the other electronic albums, I do think that he's doing something wholly unique for him. Um, there are certainly some things, as I mentioned in the outro, that you could compare with Flying Lotus, maybe some things you could uh, compare with Aphex Twin. Although to, to hone on the Flying Lotus point, while I was, you know, really happy perhaps with Flying Lotus's I'm Dead album, which we reviewed in episode 131, I feel this album got right and that was for whole different reasons, by the way, but I feel that this album got right what perhaps Flying Lotus's previous album, Until the Quiet Comes, uh, got wrong back in episode 19. And that is the fact that, well, experimentation regardless, and considering the emotional value, which I did get out of splotches of Until the Quiet Comes, this is just a wrapped package, using some of the same ideas that Flying Lotus has. But using that sporadic nature that he has, of course he's going to go into different directions. I don't know. I think this is probably one of the best electronic pieces we've looked at, um, which puts it above Aphex Twin, only because that was also experimental, but this actually has the emotional value, whereas that lacked. <sighs> Comparisons are hard. I, I think I have to go with my gut here and say this is an upper echelon piece for me. Um, maybe even a little bit tighter than the only other album that I think pursued a similar concept and I was feeling disconnected from the world, and that was Hand Cannot Erase back in episode 142. I rated that a 4.5. Uh, this is at least equal, but because there were more innovative things on a moment-to-moment -moment basis, I think I'm going to give it a 4.6. All right. Well, I think this might be the 
biggest gap we've had in a while. Yeah, we've been too close anyway, though. That's true. Yeah. Um, I'm going. With, I'm going with my gut here. We'll see how that fares in the end of the year. And moving on from our review to tonight's discussion, we are going to talk about something that kind of bothers me. Uh, it's not 100% music, but we have plenty of reason to bring it onto this podcast. Words. Words bother me. Specifically, the connotation of what a word means. Meaning, when I say industrial, you have a very obvious idea. Smokestacks. Grit. Gears. Things like that. Factories. Robots. All sorts of things of of that nature. Disheartened proletariat. (laughs) Or people losing their jobs at the robotic factories. And all sorts of stuff. When you say industrial in relation to music, you have a very specific sound in mind. When you say dystopian, you are automatically just coming up with the idea of the dystopian future, usually post-apocalyptic. Almost always post-apocalyptic. And when you say something like that, in relation to music, you have a very specific sound. Spacey, another one of those words that, yes, spacey sounds have been a trope since the 70s, 60s, 50s, since music was integrated into movies. Yeah, I probably mean, since the soundtrack to The Forbidden yeah, Planet. Yeah, there you go. All of a sudden, we have the sound of space, and it hasn't altered all too often. These words and these adjectives, nouns that we use to describe a lot of the music we listen to, and just in daily life, really, well, it's hard to use them outside of their shoehorn context, and that's a problem. Because I wanted to say words like spacey today. I want to say words like dystopian. But they wouldn't have fit the trope meaning for these words. They wouldn't have fit the common meaning for these words. Though they would have they would have worked in By their definition. in their original context. Sure. Well, of course, this is more challenging, I think, for what we do, because in nature, I think what we do is it, it, it invites description. We really need to describe before we can go into the next level, which was originally the idea behind the podcast, is review. And then we would quickly realize review is not really as important. Everybody reviews. We like to analyze. And analyze, you need to bring in description, because otherwise, how can you, how can you have a valid opinion on it if you barely even know what you're what you're talking about or if your audience doesn't know what you're talking about so we play the game and we have a round table discussion and we start sort of challenging our um our descriptive abilities and our thesaurus uh it's just kind of the name of the game here and i think it's something that that most people should really start thinking about as they go through uh music it's try to challenge yourself is because if you're just looking at those terms, then yes, a lot of stuff will run together, and also you'll lose your you'll lose your ability to perhaps advertise something to your peers. If you describe something in a too broad of a term, then that person's going to have associations with it, and that those associations are not going to be very specific to the work that you want to promote. I mean, the thing is also when describing a work, if you use the same word over and over again to describe a lot of different things. You give a ubiquity to those words yeah. that kind of numbs nice word, them. Nice word right there. I mean, it, it brings me back to a very famous George Carlin Remember bit. when we used to say ubiquitous all the time? Yeah, there's <laughs> but that. that's just it. Speaking of. It brings me back to a very famous George Carlin bit about descriptive words. And he's like, his the word he hates the most in life is nice. That nice. Isn't that nice? He's nice. Isn't that nice? It doesn't mean anything. And, 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 and it's true. The word nice doesn't mean anything. It doesn't describe anything. It doesn't say bad. It doesn't say good. Those are words that describe stuff. Nice just means nice. 
My mother and, used to have a teacher, in fact, that told her never to hand in a paper or the entire class to hand in a paper with the word nice. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. That's it's the, an empty word. And, and, it's, and a lot of the words that we use on the podcast, if we overuse them, kind of fall into that gap where if we use it on every song, then it, what, what can it really mean? Because it doesn't mean what the definition is if you're using it on three different genres to describe three different songs, you know? Exactly. And, and that's something that we have to be careful when we're describing stuff. And, I mean, like, some of the things I, I described today, I got my notes in front of me so I can read my own words. Stuttered, clipped, chopped. I'm using all these various descriptors, but I'm choosing different words for different reasons. When I say stuttered, I mean there's a little bit of repetition to it. When I say chopped, it's a little bit different than clipped. Clipped, you're just shearing off a little bit. Chopped feels like you're cutting it in half. It's it's hard to be very precise. I tend to edge toward more the of the... Uh, uh based like recording technique terms such as you know attack and decay for the same exact stuff to mean the same things when we start using these words both it's a problem the fact that well definitions can be so broad and definitions can be so specific we're often trying to search for different words i mean we're, we we have made in the past active effort to try not to repeat ourselves from month to month or idea to idea with certain terms because while they're going to be familiar for some of our longtime listeners, it, it gets kind of, well, now we're shoehorning this song with that song because we're using the same sort of idea with those two songs. And a lot of times that's to the detriment of both pieces. Well, here's the thing. I feel like this is the kind of challenge that we is really indicative of a work that is probably more successful than others, at least in terms of being distinctive. Because otherwise, we wouldn't be having this conversation. We would be having a conversation on what genre is it? What style are they using? And that's completely different than actually honing in on the descriptive terms of, of, of the sound bites that they're using. That is the mark of really stepping away from all of these different tropes and, and, uh, and categories and, and, and genres, little category boxes that we just go to on a daily basis. We get really tired of that stuff. And while it may be a little bit more refined today, of course, you struggle a little more. It's the nature of, of electronic art pieces, sound art pieces, um, or, or contemporary classical things invoking invoking completely different acoustic instruments, which also we love to get on, on uh, albums. I mean, these are the type of, these are the type of works that challenge our, our thesaurus on a daily basis. Well, I think it's also important when we're talking about describing things that like, we, we get repetitive with emo emotional-related things, too. Like I've said the word emotional on this podcast more times than I can count on both hands, probably. But Steve used very specific words when describing today's album to convey, essentially on the whole, depression but he used very specific descriptors and, and benchmarks within the depression and feeling down to really kind of hammer home the specific nature of the emotionality of the record. For instance, depressed is not necessarily despondent, which is not necessarily malaise. But they can all go hand in hand. <laughs> it's, it's kind of the beauty of the English language. You know, I notice a lot of other languages actually struggle with some of these things, but of course they make up for it in other areas. For instance, sometimes it's the tone of which you might say something, and then also they divide things that we don't divide. For instance, having like three different words to say love, as Spanish does, which is more sometimes familial, sometimes... Uh, sometimes um, kindred, you know, yeah. and sometimes just friend-wise, and sometimes they're romantic. Uh, whereas we just are satisfied with, you know, wow, love, yeah, I love you, man. Yeah. I love you. <laughs> Very different, right? Yeah. right? Well, and those, no, are, no, no, those no. are inverses of we each other. We have one thing, we add in love. 
there's love, and then there's in, in love. love. There's a we, big we difference between those two. Yeah, and re- <laughs> yeah, but we have to add another word because we don't have explain, another explain word that for the to same a sort of thing. Yeah. But getting back a little bit on on the original problem, which was the fact that, well, loaded words, I think, is my biggest issue in this day and age. It's hard to use words without an intrinsic meaning when we want to use them. I love the word dystopian. Dystopian and dystopian future are two big, different ideas, and it's just not something that we can really separate. I think that's more on how socially a lot of these words are used now versus how we use them in our personal life. I think that with the rise of the zombie movie and the dystopian future movies and post-apocalyptic stuff, people are taking a word that meant something very specific and broadening it. And it happens with a lot of words in the English language. I think we're at the whim and will of modern technology and modern sociology. And we can't really control how the definition broadens sometimes. I would bring in something else. I think it has a little bit more to do with mass media. And the fact that, of course, that's kind of... It's almost standardizing this terminology, but it has also the capacity to standardize it incorrectly. Yeah. Right? We get ideas from things because they're just spoken by one person the next, and it's a game of telephone at that point. And then we realize we've lost the, the, the power, you know, behind the original meaning or we lose our ability to think outside that box. I think that it's important to note that there's no obviously quick solution for this problem that we're posing. It's just this idea of something to be aware of. When you're describing something, try not to use the first three words that come into your head to describe something. Like if you want to say Mm, something. That's a good challenge. If you want to, like for example, Steve, I will challenge you. If you wanted to say something um, is angry, what word would you decide would you use to describe anger that's not angry and not two other words you would use to describe it heated see and see that's not something i would easily think of for example john if you wanted to say something was manic how else would you describe it kinetic this idea that you can challenge and i never would have used that i I went to the fourth word considering that kinetic defines uh Motion. motion. But it, I almost see that as a forward steady motion as opposed to a forward sporadic motion, which I think more defines manic. Well, I actually used the word kinetic today to describe a frantic see? kind of manic nature. In this hypothetical discussion, if this were an album, you'd be our problem child. There you go. <laughs> well, I mean, it's it's context, and that's the problem. Some words have, have meaning without context, and I don't like that. I mean... It just limits vocabulary in a lot of places. Yeah, but if we start talking about context, that's a whole other two-hour discussion because context is warped everywhere, from mass media to, to music to everywhere. I no, mean, no, I just mean like the trope context, not uh, the f- way it's being used today and how they're destroying our vocabulary one word at a time in today's society. But going back to another another word, industrial. Automatically, we start thinking of, in music, clanks and clongs and repetition and a sort of cold nature to it but that's not the only thing it could be it could be more metronomic it can be more electronic it can be more computerized well ever since it became a genre unto itself according to somebody then you know now of course we we yeah we invoke things that probably would would be a departure from the original sense of the word I believe that somebody was Trent Reznor, and he's way more famous than Was him. that applied to his work, though, or was it, it applied by him? Uh, I think it was applied to his work. So, yeah, I guess it wouldn't be his set. Yeah, so it's just some guy in an attic somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> like, he's trying to do just 
But I, I think that ultimately the best way to protect against something like this is what I had posed earlier and also to really kind of try and take in what you're analyzing. I mean, anybody's capable of analyzing music, not to give away our jobs and put us out of a job because nobody's paying us anyway. Mm. Um, you can be this analytical about music too, and you don't have to speak complexly comple with such complexity that Steve would speak with. Um, it's just, you can, but there are other ways to form those thoughts using descriptors, but not falling into the tropes that John is talking about. So if you want to describe something that's big and airy and has a lot of, you know, individual components, long tones, but it's still a little bit cold, then use the word spacey. Don't use it in other contexts because, well, the implications aren't always there. Try to be a little bit more or a little bit less descriptive. If you're trying to explain something, honestly, you just want to be clear. You want to be precise. And these are more adjectives that, well, I mean, it's not really quantifying or qualifying it too clearly. You just have to be able to describe it. And that's something, well, you can only learn by reading. You can only learn by just going through the source if you really want to be that anal about it. You know, it's a good guide uh, as to what not to do. Steadily go backwards through all of our episodes until you, you know, start reaching the, the double single digits. Um, yeah. We're don't, a lot less descriptive back then. Don't do that. Descriptive? I mean, we barely filled an hour some <laughs> weeks. It was pretty bad. Again, well, we also have have more trouble with instrumentals, and I, I, I maintain that the more and more we have in our um, in our, our compendium, then, then the better we get. You know, right. we come off, a, a, even as with this album, we come off, you know, a, several weeks of more popular oriented music. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, right, got to get back into the groove here. Like, I, you know, I think it was we had an easier time with uh, episode 133 Kang Ding Ray's album because we were coming more recently off of uh, Flying Lotus and recently off of Aphex Twin. But here all of a sudden you start forgetting and then all of a sudden you're back in genre territory. You're not in descriptive territory. It's a, it's a very easy uh it's very easy talent, I think, to break if you don't if you don't use it. It's much like, in fact, playing an instrument. You can't put it down for long stretches of the time. It's not like riding a bike. It, it's muscle memory, but only muscle memory only lasts so long. Mm -hmm. um, point of, point of conjecture: the brain is not, in fact, a muscle. It's a puddle. Yeah, it's it's a common misnomer. But anyway, you were saying. <laughs> I had to add some 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 liveliness to here. We're being very serious. Let's joke. There we go. I made, I made my co-stars um, laugh. I think this is a good transition point to start moving on to our wrap-up of the episode. Um, I want to take a moment to thank Star F. We featured him reading a comment very recently. Um, uh, he was saying that he discovered us through Shape of the Dark Lord and then asked us to review an album. Well, he very graciously donated to Crash Chords. You can, of course, donate to us on our website. There's a donate button both on the homepage and on the article pages. Um, every donation will go towards improving our setup, giving us more access to more music that we may not be able to find on Spotify or find just generally on the internet, allows us to purchase records that we might not be able to stream, stuff like that, more equipment, better setup. We're, we're trying to build a better show for you since we charge nothing for it per episode. Donations very much help us to build a better program. That's right, and he left a very, very nice message, which we'll be reading in lieu of our spam, and in lieu of me reading it. Yes. So, um, we got the donation, and attached to the donation it said, $5 for reviewing They Might Be Giants Glean. I've been listening to it a ton lately, and really appreciate the review. And then five more dollars for the promise of taking on Jeff Rosenstock's We Cool. Can't wait. 
Thanks, Star F. He's buying us out. And we are cheap. <laughs> right now. Expect right now. that and more, Star F. Um, genuinely, though, thank you for donating towards us. Um, we are working to get um, more microphones and, and, and improve our setup, improve the recording situation. Um, so every little bit helps. Um, but we're glad that you enjoyed the review of Glean. I happen to be listening to it quite a lot. I'm very fond of the record. I'm obsessed with the record. It's it's a really, honestly, I'm just integrating that and Modest Mouse together and just listening to both albums simultaneously. It's a freaking trip. Um, with that said, though, um, because you've been so gracious to donate and because I did want to make sure that we did review it this month, we will next week be taking on actually that said album that you recommended, which is Jeff Rosenstock's We Cool. Um, we will take that on next week. Um, and thank you again for your uh, suggestion of an album to review as well as investing in the Crash Chords podcast and Crash Chords as a site in general. Investing. Yeah. We return in content. We do return in content. That's right. And quality. That's right. And more often than quarterly. And more often than quarterly, that's also true. And maybe at some point fractions of a cent amount. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who knows? Own payoffs. (laughs) So I think on that bombshell, this is a good place to say, like we do every week, music is life. And And life life is is good. If you enjoyed this and other album analyses, topics, and guests, please subscribe to the Crash Chords Podcast on iTunes, where you can also rate us and review us. For more media, also subscribe to Matt's one-on-one interview series, Crash Chords Autographs. To receive emails on all new content, subscribe at the top of our homepage. Also receive updates by liking us on Facebook, following us on Twitter at Crash Chords Web, our Tumblr, and our YouTube channel. And remember, keep the discussion going, because music is life, and life is good. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to share them in the comment board below each post. Otherwise, email us directly at admin at crashchords.com.